Will you please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, and we'll be looking at some verses in that chapter, so we want everybody to be able to look along with us, so these brothers have some Bibles. So everybody needs to have a Bible. If you didn't come in with one, then get their attention, and they will get a copy of God's Word to you. It is marked at John chapter 1, so that you can turn directly there, and you can keep that Bible as our gift to you. John chapter 1. Just this past week, I was talking with a brother in the Lord who attends another church. He cited the oft-repeated statistic that in any given church, 10% of the people do 90% of the work. Now, I've heard that many times over the years. Perhaps you have as well. And my experience and my observation are that in many, many churches, that's indeed true. A small part of the congregation carries the load of the ministry. I'm glad to say that many of you have heard me say many times over the years that at CBC we don't have that issue because at any given time we have 70 to 80 percent of our congregation actively involved in the work of the Lord. And for the 20 to 30 percent who are not at any given time, there may be good reasons. Not least is the fact that a healthy church always has people who are at different stages of growth. And so you should always have some who are young in the Lord, no matter their age, they're young in the Lord, and they're just learning what it means to serve Jesus. They'll eventually join the ranks of those actively serving. I'm serving you all notice that that'll be the case. And Lord willing, they will be replaced by others who need to learn as they have. But there is a potential problem, even when you have, as we do, a large percentage of people who are engaged in the work of the church, and that potential problem is this. We can satisfy ourselves that we're serving to some extent and fail to serve the Lord to our greatest extent. Every Christian needs to be a committed servant of the Lord, and every Christian needs to serve the Lord to the fullest measure of his or her gifts. Now, what might keep us from doing that, from moving to serving to fully serving? Well, one reason is we know we should do something, but we don't want to do any more than we have to, so let's be honest, we concoct reasons why we can't. One way we do this is by confusing giftedness with commitment. We look at someone who's obviously committed and we say, I'm not them, I can't do what they do. Now the reason that we see and we observe people like that is because they're in positions of visible leadership and presumably they have gifts that are consistent with the position that they they hold. So we look at them and we say, look at how gifted they are, I can't be as committed as them. But do you see the sleight of hand here? We've conflated gifting and commitment. Three weeks ago, we had our final service with our dear friends, Matt and Erica Owen. And in that morning service, uh, I preached from the life of Aquila and Priscilla. And I compared some of what we see in Scripture about that couple to things that we have been privileged to see in the life of Matt and Erica. And it's easy, I said at that time, for us to look at a couple like that and say they are clearly and obviously gifted, but we can't do all that they do. We're not them. 
But hear this, I said then and I repeat to you now, we can and we must emulate their commitment. Another reason that many of us are content with just doing something rather than doing all that God has gifted us to do is because we still have what I call a hangover from the Protestant Reformation. Say, what is that? Well, about 500 years ago, in fact, 497 and a half years ago, an historical movement in church history called the Protestant Reformation began. And it was, as the name suggests, a protest over things that were going on in the church church, and a, a desire to reform those. So the Protestant Reformation, Protestant Reformation began. And one of the mantras of the Protestant Reformation was the biblical teaching on something called the priesthood of every believer. And although many of us have heard of that, and although great effort was expended to try to expunge the idea, current at the time of the Reformation, that there were two classes of people. There was the clergy and there was the laity. There were the people who were really close to God, and then there was everybody else. I'm convinced that even though we know intellectually there is no such distinction, many of us don't believe it fully. In our minds, there is a caste system in the church. And some people are in the top caste, others in the lower caste, and those at the top are closer to God, and they're the ones who really get it done. And so my question to all of us is, how do you see yourself in the Lord's work? Do you think of yourself as a key player in His mission? Do you see yourself as just doing something or doing all that He's gifted you to do? And today I hope to disabuse us of the many false notions regarding who it is the Lord uses because He calls each of us to be a full follower of Christ. And so today we continue our series titled Portraits of Grace. And I want to take a few weeks to look at profiles of some of Jesus' earliest followers. Today we're going to see some things that were true of that first group in general, and then we're going to take a few weeks to look at a few of them in some detail. Let's ask the Lord to help us then, as we do. Father, thank you for gathering us. You have gathered us because you have given us the ability to be here, the health to be here, the desire to be here, the place at which to be. We are here by your appointment and by your grace, so thank you that we have this time to open your word and to see what you have for us therein. Help us, Lord, to have open hearts, attentive minds. Help us to leave different than we came. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. As each week, we have inserted for you in your program an outline with today's message. And if you haven't pulled that out already, I encourage you to do that. First thing I want us to see from the lives of these first followers of Jesus is this. Jesus' followers are regular people. Jesus' followers are regular people. In just a moment, we're going to look at Scripture, and we're going to see the word disciple. These earliest followers are often called the the twelve disciples. The word disciple in Scripture means a follower or a learner. It comes from a time when rabbis or teachers were itinerant. That is, they would go from place to place, and they would often have a following who would stay with them and listen to them in order to learn from them. These followers, these learners, were then called disciples. John the Baptist 
was an itinerant preacher. And he had a following of disciples of his own. And he was preaching in John chapter 1 and baptizing at the Jordan River. And when he saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then John chapter 1 and verse 35 tells us what happened the next day. Look at verse 35. It says, John, referring to John the Baptist, was there again, notice, with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Now, this time he refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God, but now he specifically directed two of his own followers to Jesus. He was saying, look, he is the one who's the focus of my ministry, the Lamb of God. And Then notice what happened beginning in verse 37. When the two disciples... Now, these are two disciples, followers of John the Baptist. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following, and he asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So Jesus notices them following, and he asks what they want. They fumble a little bit, and they say, "Um, Where are you staying? Now, this was their bashful way of saying, Can we come along? And Jesus says in verse 39, come and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. Verse 40 says, Andrew was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. So you've got these initial two followers of Jesus and only one of them is named Andrew. The other is without doubt none other than John himself, the John who wrote the Gospel of John. Throughout the entire 21 chapters that comprise the book of John, he never names himself. And so it is John and it is Andrew who become these first followers of Jesus. And then we have the account of Jesus recruiting some of his original 12. Now here's what I want you to see. Although the apostles accomplished amazing things, they were very regular people. Think about this. Most of us know that Jesus had this original band of 12, and if we thought about who those 12 were, many of us could name several of them. We know Peter, James, John, Matthew. Three of those four wrote books in the New Testament. Some of us might remember Thomas, also known as Doubting Thomas, because of his famous encounter with Jesus after he had risen from the dead. And of course, everybody knows Judas Iscariot. But that's still only half of the twelve. So what about the other half dozen? There's Philip. And then there's a second James, not to be confused with the aforementioned James. There's also Simon the Zealot and Thaddeus and Andrew and Nathaniel. Now, most of us don't even know who those guys are. And the point of all of that is that this is a group that was unremarkable. They were extraordinarily ordinary. And I want to drive home to you just how ordinary and regular they were. They came from various backgrounds. Four of the twelve are mentioned explicitly in this account in John chapter 1. Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And John is the fifth, that unnamed follower of John the Baptist who became a follower of Jesus. Four of the twelve come from a place called Bethsaida, 
which means the fishing house. They were fishermen. We really don't know much about Nathaniel, who's also called Bartholomew. It's possible that tradition is correct that he was the only one of the twelve who came from royal blood. We know that Matthew was a tax collector. He was viewed and considered the scum of Jewish society because he was a traitor to his own people by working for the hated Roman government. Simon is called the Zealot because he was part of a political group, the Zealots, who had dedicated their very lives to the overthrow of the Roman Empire. Many of the Zealots would engage in assassinations in order to further their political ends. And so they came from very different backgrounds. And they have different personalities. In our passage, we have John, who quietly and without self-promotion mentions himself only in passing. He doesn't even name himself, as I pointed out. We find John as the mild, beloved apostle of the Lord who's almost always in the, in the background. And yet, on the other hand, you have Peter. Peter's headstrong and quick-spoken. Peter was usually the first to speak. Sometimes he would stick his foot in his mouth. Philip is mentioned a few times throughout this book, and it's almost as if Philip never knows quite what's going on. He's always the guy troubled as he tries to figure it all out. And then there is Thomas, doubting Thomas, who tends to be a bit pessimistic. It's Thomas who would later say, let's go to Jerusalem with him and die. And so there are various personalities. They're all different. None of them cut from the same cloth. It's a wide variety of humanity. And so they come from these different backgrounds. They have different personalities, and they had different roles to fulfill. John is the writer who's penning this gospel, and he wrote three uh, letters plus the book of Revelation. Peter also wrote, but he was primarily used to open the door of of the church on the day of Pentecost. And he stood and he, on that day, proclaimed the mighty message of Christ with great boldness in Acts chapter 2. And then in Acts chapter 10, God used Peter to open the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. Tradition says that Nathaniel or Bartholomew labored in obscurity in central Turkey. They all had jobs to do. Some of them were prominent. Others quietly served behind the scenes. And of Jesus' three-year public ministry, he spent about half of that three years with these guys. About a year and a half of intense training that included teaching and modeling before them. Yet after all of that, Jesus says, these guys are still a little dense. Because you come to the end of that time, the end of Jesus' public ministry. In Luke 24, Jesus says this, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe. So none of these were by nature the sharpest knives in the drawer, we might say. And most of them didn't go to the best schools, if at all. In fact, it's said of Peter and John, they were unschooled, ordinary men. And they were often selfishly motivated. On one occasion, they're speaking to Jesus about his coming kingdom. In Mark chapter 10, teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, nothing much. (laughs) Just let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. And in addition to all that, they were all cowards. When the going got tough, 
they all ran. As Jesus is arrested and his impending execution is on the horizon, the Bible tells us all the disciples deserted him and fled. After Jesus was crucified, they went back to their various trades, and they were ready to fail at that too. In fact, here's what the Bible tells us. After Jesus was crucified, Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but caught nothing. Now, that's the last chapter in the Gospel of John, and it goes on to tell us that Jesus then met with them, showed them how to really have success, and then to launch them into more important work than physical fishing to become fishers of men. Now, friends, the point of all that is this, that God delights in using very regular people like us who don't have much to recommend us. And why does He do that? Why does God choose people who don't have much to recommend them? Because God is absolutely determined to get the credit for everything that's accomplished. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us. God chose the foolish things of the world. God chose the weak things of the world. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. Here's why. So that no one may boast before Him. One commentator says, The choosing of the twelve did not include a single rabbi, scribe, Pharisee, Sadducee, or priest. Not one of them was from the religious establishment. They were Galileans who were deemed to be low-class, rural, uneducated people. They were like Elijah. The Bible says of Elijah that he was a man just like like us. And so Jesus' followers are regular people. The second thing I want you to see in your outline is that Jesus' followers are committed to him. Regular people, various roles, different backgrounds, but regular folk, often not very impressive, but all committed to him. Him. Following Jesus involves initial commitment to Him and then ongoing, intensified commitment to Him. Now, initial commitment to Jesus. That happens when we come to Him. That happens when we first profess Him as our Savior and bow before Him as our Lord. In biblical terminology, it's the time when we were saved, when we were born again, when we came to Christ. That happened at different times and different circumstances for all of us here who have come to Christ. Many of you will remember that time when someone shared the gospel with you and the Spirit of God moved upon your heart and you embraced the message and the Savior of that message. And When you did that, you made an initial commitment to Jesus as His follower. In fact, in Scripture, the word believer is used as a synonym for disciple. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you are a disciple. You are a follower of Jesus. Now, I have to emphasize that just for a moment because we live in a day when people have lost that. It's truly biblical, as I'll show you in a moment, that if you're a believer, you're a follower of Jesus. You are a disciple of Jesus. There has been teaching rampant in our country for decades that says you're a believer, later you become a disciple. Nonsense. When you come to Jesus, you begin to follow him. It's an initial 
commitment to follow him that will grow deeper as you grow in him. But the moment you become a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus. That's why the book of Acts throughout uses the word disciple, the word believer or Christian as synonymous. For example, Acts chapter 11, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. To be called a Christian, to be called a disciple, were the same thing. John the Baptist pointed these disciples to Jesus, and they began then to to follow him. And Jesus then turned around, as we saw, and said, what do you want? They said, can we come with you? They spent that day with him. We don't know the topic of conversation, but some kind of transformation took place in the lives of those two men that day because they left Jesus And they couldn't wait to tell someone else about him. They took others along, and they stayed with him. And in verse 43, we see that Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. And he found Philip, and here's what it says. He said to Philip, follow me. That's essentially the same thing as back in verse 39, where he said, come and you will see. This expression then, follow me, is one that belongs to all Christians, all of those who have come to, to Christ. This expression is used throughout the Gospel of John. It's a description of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's packed with commitment. Back in John chapter 8, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He later said, whoever serves me must follow me. In the very last chapter of this book, the Gospel of John, Jesus had just brought Peter back to himself after you'll remember Peter had denied the Lord because Peter was was a coward, he was was afraid. And Jesus has just restored him, but now he's, he's telling him what kind of death that Peter is going to die. And here's what John chapter 21 says. Jesus told Peter the kind of death by which he, Peter, would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that John was following them. Peter saw him and asked, Lord, what about him? (laughs) Peter, you're going to die for me. All right, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. So from moment one, when they are called by Jesus and they profess him, they are his followers. And then that following, that obedience deepens as they grow in him. As we compare the Gospel of John with the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find that Jesus on more than one occasion issued a command for the apostles to follow him. It appears that early on their relationship with Jesus was sporadic. They would follow him, they would spend blocks of time with him, and then they would go home. But in Mark chapter 1, we have a second account of Jesus' call to these same disciples. And here's what verse 16 of Mark 1 says. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now this is a bit different than John 1, where Andrew was one of the ones that followed John the Baptist who then pointed to Jesus, and Andrew went and followed Jesus. Later, Jesus says to him as he's fishing, come follow me. So what's happening here? 
There's a growing depth of commitment to which Jesus continually calls his disciples. Jesus laid initial truths in front of them, calling for initial commitment. Follow me. Come learn of me. And later the commitment deepens. He says, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I'll give you the skills to proclaim the gospel to those who will listen. And Mark chapter 1 goes on to say this. When Jesus had gone a little farther, he saw James and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. He called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. Jesus calls regular people, different kinds of backgrounds, usually not impressive. But here's what he calls us to, friends. He calls us to follow him. When you come to Jesus at that initial moment, you become a follower of his. And then throughout your life, he deepens that call to commitment. Follow me. Now you have learned more. Follow me in new and greater and deeper ways. Throughout our lives, we are becoming greater and more intense followers of Jesus. And so Jesus' followers are regular people like you and me. They are people who are committed to him. And then thirdly, I say in your outline, Jesus' followers are people who invite others to follow him. We invite others to follow him. John and Andrew emerge from their afternoon and evening spent with Jesus. And immediately what they do is begin to tell others. Verses 40 and 42 say this. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. The first thing that Andrew did was to evangelize someone else. I want you to note where he started. He started with where he was familiar. He started at home. When I've taught evangelism in the past, one of the things that I've recommended is you start with people you know. And then you could make a list of people you used to know or people you would like to know. But you start with the people you know. And Andrew started with those he knew, those who were closest to him. And he comes to his brother Peter and he leads him to Jesus. Sometimes we think of the work of evangelism as the work of some professionals. Dear friends, you do not need to be a professional in order to lead somebody to Jesus. You simply need to know who he is and what he has done, and then to tell others about that in your own life. He started with those he knew. And then he was intentional in his work. Notice verse 41. It says, The very first thing Andrew did was to find his, his brother, Peter. He didn't just happen to cross paths with, with Peter. He didn't just make small talk. There was a passion for him to share the good news, and he was intentional about it. And so he sought his brother out, saying, you have to hear what we've heard. We've found the Messiah. We've found Jesus Christ. And look what happens with Philip in verse 44. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael was a skeptic. Nazareth, can anything good come from there, he asked. 
Now, Nazareth was not looked upon with great favor by those in that region. Maybe because behind that skepticism was the fact that they knew the Old Testament Scriptures and the fact that the Messiah was to be born in, in Bethlehem. Indeed, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but though born there, in a great expression of His condescension, Jesus was forever known as Jesus of this forsaken place called Nazareth. And Philip didn't argue with Nathaniel. He simply said, come and see. See, friends, here's the other thing about followers of Jesus who invite others to become followers of Jesus. You don't have to be an expert in apologetics to defend the faith. You have to say, come and see. Invite someone to Bible study. Invite someone to, to hear the Word of God at, at church. Tell them, come, I'll introduce you to someone who can share the Scriptures with you. Come and see. It's a powerful evangelistic technique because the fact is you and I don't convince, hear this, we don't convince anyone to be saved. So the followers of Jesus are regular people. They're committed people. They invite others to follow Jesus. Last in your outline. They know who He is. Jesus' followers know who He is. You find a number of indications in this passage that they've come to know who Jesus is. They know Jesus is Messiah because verse 41 says, The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. Many of you know that Messiah is a translation of the word in the Old Testament that means anointed one, Mashiach, Messiah, the anointed one. And the reason it says that is Christ is because the equivalent word in your New Testament in Greek is Christos. still means the same thing, the anointed one or, or Christ. But what is significant about this idea of the anointed one? Well, in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, anointing was the practice when someone was being inaugurated into an official office in the kingdom. Oil was applied to his head as a symbol that the Spirit of God was setting him apart for that particular work. And so that happened when Aaron was made high priest of Israel in the Old Testament. Or Elisha was made a prophet in Israel. We have this anointing with, with oil. Or the anointing of David as Israel's king. And all three of these ideas, being a priest, being a prophet, being a king, are bound up with being the anointed one, the Messiah. And the first part of your Bible was pointing to and predicting that there would be one who would come who would be the priest who brings men to God, who would be the prophet who proclaims the word of God, and who would be the king who would rule on David's throne forever. He's the Messiah. He is the Christ. And so these early followers of Jesus knew that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And as such, he has the answer to all of man's true problems. They know he's the Messiah, and then the passage also tells us they know he is the Son of God. Nathaniel says in verse 49, You are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Now when it says you are the Son of God, Jesus' favorite title for himself was Son of, Son of Man, many of you know. But then he is also called in Scripture the Son of God. And in Scripture, Son of means to have the attributes of someone or something. So in the Old Testament, Noah was said to be literally, it just says in your English translation, Noah was 500 years old, but literally it says he was the son of 500 years. He had the characteristics of somebody who had been around for 500 years. That means he looked old. 
or James and John, the sons of Zebedee that we've read about already, they were called the sons of thunder. They had the characteristics of thunder, that is, they were unpredictable, they were loud, they were boisterous. Jesus had both the characteristics of man and of God. He is fully man, though without sin. He is fully God. He is the unique person, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that, Nathaniel can say, you are the Son of God, and you are the one who's the King of Israel. Dear friends, that is what disciples are. That's what followers are. Followers are people who are regular folks. They are people who, at the moment they come to Jesus, they're committed to Him, but that commitment deepens as they walk with Him. They are people who delight to invite others to follow Him. They are people who know who Jesus is and follow Him accordingly. My question to you then is, what kind of follower are you? And are you qualified to be a follower of Jesus? Well, if you're not that smart or not that courageous or not that outgoing or not that talented, you're just not all that. If all that's true of you, you're not any of that stuff, then great. You're a perfect candidate to be a committed follower of Jesus. So no more excuses for any of us. No more I'm not like them. Jesus has called me. Jesus has called you. Jesus has gifted me. Jesus has gifted you for the role to which he has called you. And in greater intensifying commitment as you grow in him. Well, where do I sign up, Pastor? You sign up, I mean, literally at the information desk. (laughs) And you say, I want to use my gifts for Jesus. Tell me how to use my gifts for Jesus. We have a ministry devoted to that very thing because it's that important. And I encourage you before you leave today to do that very thing. And so I say in your take-home truth, Jesus calls ordinary people to do extraordinary work. It's exactly what he did with the, his first followers that we call the apostles. And over the next couple of weeks, we will focus in on a few of them.